You're listening to Soundbite, a podcast that's food for your ears. I'm Celine Roberts. I've got something a little different in store for today's show, so let's jump right in. This week on Soundbite, we are in the City Paper Studios. We are taking a week break from being in the field, but I'm lucky to have David Bernabo, the filmmaker behind Food Systems, Chapter 4, about home cooking, hunger, and solutions to a growing food problem. Hey, thanks for having me. So this is the fourth film in the Food Systems series, and it follows uh, three other films, two feature-length documentaries and one short. I started this about two and a half years ago. My other lives are in music, doing bands, making installation art, dancing occasionally, and uh, lately writing and publishing. But what's been consuming my life for the last two and a half years is this documentary series, and it's been enlightening and a joy to make in addition to a lot of work. What led you to be interested in food systems in our area? So when I started the film, it coincided with me making enough money at my previous job that I could afford to go to some high-end restaurants, and then I would go to those high-end restaurants, and I'm like, oh, I really like this food. And then as I uh, started filming chefs, restaurateurs for the first movie, I met other people involved in the local food economy, people working at the food bank, people working on farms. And my awareness of actually where my food comes from, all the work that goes into all the different elements from someone who grows it, someone who transports it, someone who sends it to the restaurant or the grocery store, and then the people preparing your food, you know, that was kind of a world that was hidden to me. And I was really interested in investigating that and parsing it down and then displaying it through these films. Why don't we review the previous three parts before we jump into part four? Part one is a history of restaurants in Pittsburgh. It's definitely not a complete history, and it's definitely looking at some of the bigger high-end restaurants throughout time. So starting in the late 70s, it's looking at Le Normand, which, uh, from what my father tells me, was the best restaurant in Pittsburgh at the time, importing ingredients from France and things like that. And as the film continues, it gets into Big Burrito, and that's kind of another landmark in the film where you see a restaurant dealing with local agriculture and local produce. And then from there, you see a lot of chefs coming through that Big Burrito school. I'm making air quotes. From there, it kind of surveys different restaurants of different nationalities. Part two is really short. It's 20 minutes, not narrative, and it actually screened about a year before part one. So it was at the Three Rivers Film Festival, and it's about farm dinners. And it's just visiting three different farm dinners, uh, Churchview Farm is included. That film, because I made it first, was actually the bridge from a non-narrative film I started with about artist process into the more narrative style of the other Food Systems films. And part three, which I saw some time ago, I really loved. Mm. I thought um, that your filming style in that was very effective. The images of the trout in that one sort of play over and over again in my mind, but (laughs) that's about ecosystems and the way that we transport food around, the way it gets to our tables. As sort of a coda to that, you also added a lot of information about fracking in this area. Yeah, so as I made these films, I learned more about filmmaking, and I feel like I was able to tell the narrative of that film better than I was in the earlier film. I was able get into more nuanced arguments of how food is actually grown and how that growing is impacted. So fracking is definitely 
becoming more of an issue in the same way that strip mining was a huge issue and still remains an issue 70 years after the initial strip mining. So what I was hoping to get across was that these are not a problem we have this week and then it goes away. You drill a well, that well is going to be there until someone devotes money to refurbishing it and making it usable and making that land usable. So in a sense that film is looking at environmental issues and trying to get that across and pairing it with how food is impacted because we all need to consume food every day. It just seems like common sense that you would want to preserve land, preserve the economy of jobs for farmers, and preserve quality food. Part four, since it's focusing on home cooking and food access issues, food deserts, the way that institutionalized racism class structure influences the way that we get food to people's tables seems like a, a a logical step just considering that if we don't invest money time resources into our food systems and making them available for everyone we're not getting i'm just going to use food terms we're not getting any yield <laughs> um and that's where i wanted to start with talking about chapter four yeah. because it it brought me to tears the emotional aspect of your filming really hit me. For those listening that might not be tapped into food access, what that means and what the problems might be, what did you what did you learn about what the problems are from making this film? There, I mean, there are so many problems, <laughs> right? I mean, you can look at uh, the sources of the food. A lot of the seeds are controlled by Monsanto and other genetically modified seed growers and there are different documentaries focusing specifically on that you can look at our market-based system and look at how food is distributed and how government subsidies subsidize corn soy other commodity products and that sustains farmers and that's good to some extent but it also creates markets for high fructose corn syrup and different uses of corn that are not natural that they're chemically induced and that they're harmful to uh, diets. You can look at uh, income, and that's a lot of what the fourth film is dealing with, that it's great to talk about organic foods, it's great to uh, eat grass-fed beef, even though people are ripping up rainforests in South America to grow more grass-fed beef because the demand is increasing. And it's great to do all these things, but if you don't have the income to participate, then you're excluded from that conversation. And you have to kind of uh, find your own entryways into that if you don't have the income to just buy your way in and buy your way in with cultural capital and uh, access to the information about Pittsburgh's top ten restaurants. There are a lot of points to attack these issues. Alice Jolier from Chatham University also talks about the marketing aspect. The money that goes into marketing processed foods is way higher than what your local organic farm can do or even Penn's Corner or even larger aggregates. So it's kind of a system, a series of systems that are rigged against the consumer. Or not rigged, but they're just set up in a way uh, they maximize profit for certain entities. And a lot of those entities are not focused on health, and they're not focused on wellness. So I had a former life at, for one year <laughs> as a social worker, mm. and uh, an, an undertrained one. And I have a dietitian for a mother, so food preparation and healthy food and ways of 
getting that onto the table in easy and fast ways because you know, we had a working household were always something that were very much focused on in my home and something I've carried with me. And there was a huge deficit of that happening with the families that I was working with because they were also working class people who might have, you know, not a dearth of time or money or even pots and pans that they could cook with. Or they'd never been, they'd never followed a recipe through from end to end and that was intimidating. And that's one of the issues that was touched on in the film that I really resonated with, just having run into those problems out in the real world. And that Alice also talked about was education isn't enough. And at the time I was 23 and I really believed that education was enough. So I naively took one of these families to the grocery store and I helped them pick out foods that I had been educated about and thought were healthy. And then we got home and I realized that I had no scope on what their actual lives were like and whether or not they'd have time to prepare this food or whether or not they'd even seen how to prepare the food that I had brought with them. And it was like this moment of deep reckoning within myself where I felt really ashamed because I was, I was trying to help, but I had no education on, on how to help or what to do effectively to be a, a positive supporting influence. So, I mean, I think when you when you say education is the solution, it's uh, a very vague notion of what education is. Um, I think it has to happen on a lot of different tiers and in conjunction with a lot of other things. So if you reinstate home ec in grade schools, that's a form of education, and that's a form where people, or, you know, young people might be exposed to a kitchen and cooking and the use of knives, which is important because if you never learn how to use a knife, when are you going to learn to use it? So, you know, that's in the schools, and you see garden programs popping up, but it's not a federally mandated thing. It's not happening to every school, every public school. It's happening in select areas uh, where there is either funding to support that or that the schools are well off enough where the school district can just support it. But uh, a lot of the participants in the film talked about a multi-generational shift. So if if we're saying education is one of the answers it's going to happen over multiple generations, and it's going to need to be a concerted effort on a lot of people's part. So you see, you know, Celeste Taylor creating a community garden in Homewood, and you know that is exposing certain people to food. So that's a form of education. It's um, a small number of people, you know, relatively small, when you're dealing with uh, re-educating an entire city or a portion of a city. I think education is one thing, but you really need to change other elements of public policy and uh, school education. And all these conversations just seem to come back to the idea of income equity, uh, equality, and um, giving everyone the same tools to make decisions that are specific to their own lives and their own preferences and their own wants and desires and goals. And I, I think all these systems that we have set up aren't geared to giving everyone the same option to pursue what they want and consume what they want. What do you feel is the most salient issue in this chapter for Pittsburgh? Um, the, the thing that I was really interested in, especially because I didn't know all the nuance of it, was kind of how the film ends with a survey of how the whole district was essentially decimated through urban renewal efforts. 
And I think that's important because you're seeing a mutated version of that in East Liberty now. And Chris Ivey's doing a great job documenting that with the East of Liberty series. Um, but it's it, it, it's an issue that it's hard to combat. Um, and there's a lot of nuanced discussion that needs to happen that's not happening because, um, you know, headlines are driven to... So if you look at the news landscape, you can't have a long essay. You can't publish a long discussion and have people read it. So it's a challenge of disseminating information. And that's why I wanted to put the Hill District discussion, which is long, it's 17 minutes long, and it kind of ends the film, into the film because this is a way to disseminate that information and uh, have a couple people discuss that nuanced argument of how a vibrant community that did suffer under Jim Crow laws and redlining and you know racist policies, how that community did build themselves up just to have it uh, torn down by greed developers. It's a, you know you list those things. It's a lot of what you hear in East Liberty, what you're going to be hearing in Wilkinsburg and Homewood and a lot of the East End. And um, Dr. Mindy Fulilove, who's a professor at Columbia, who's in the film, makes uh, some interesting arguments about how. And, and this was something I didn't fit in the film because I was thinking about a further section on East Liberty, which I may or may not do. But basically, you look at East Liberty development, and it's like the argument quickly becomes, well, if we did nothing, then you wouldn't have any of this. Or we could do all this stuff, and this is what you have. But there's a middle ground. There's a middle ground where you can involve the community more in decision-making. Um, and Larmer, um, to some extent, I think, is doing that because they, even though they have that big influx of money, there's a strong community group there that is um, directing decisions. Um, the Hill District has a really vibrant community, and a lot of people are heavily influencing what's happening there. It's just that there's so much money with the Penguins and all these other forces that are smashing against that strong will of uh, Hill District residents, and it's it's kind of a different scale than some of the other neighborhoods. But, you know, the, back to that point, there is an in-between where you benefit the community, you try to minimize displacement, while also still providing stores that people need. And, and trying to get back to, to maybe a simpler way where it's less development-based, less market-driven, less greed-incentivized. Do you see your role as a filmmaker with this documentary series as one of... You know, essentially a long-form essayist. Like, here's all the information. I'm going to lay it out in front of you, and I'm going to allow you to draw your own conclusions? Or do you feel that you draw conclusions in the film? Um, I think tr conclusions are drawn. My goal with this was uh, to let the participants speak and to give them enough time to get their full opinion out and not try to compromise the context of what they're saying. So in that way, I, I hope it's uh, a true representation of the people who are in the film, uh, edited entertainingly enough so that it's easy to watch. <laughs> um, but, you know, there, there's a point of view, and that happens in the edit. There's things I left out that I don't agree with, um, things that I definitely agree with. I had a couple people who also agreed with that, you know, inserted multiple voices and more voices speaking to an idea. I think is more powerful. 
there's an artistic through line of time-lapse montage mm. that I really loved and I thought made it very apparent that all of the parts belong together. Mm. Um, in the most recent chapter, chapter four, you start the film with a segment of an Indian family cooking together. And then it moves directly into you, or a person I assume is you, creating a plate with um, partially food items and partially non-food oh, items. Yeah. And that's something that I've seen throughout all of the films is these artistic cuts of things that maybe aren't necessarily hyper-realistic. Jumping from the realistic to the artful. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, luckily, uh, my friend Gary Jones and I did the, all the title sequences, which the idea behind that was making a plate of something with all non-food items. Luckily, we did four in the beginning when I only thought I was doing one movie because <laughs> we had four movies. Um, but, you know, my, my background is in music, um, which influences the editing, and then I got into art, which influences uh, a lot of the sequences of this concept of uh, beauty and also finding it beautiful to just be in a hot kitchen with a very uh, uh, Dogma 95 camera floating around and, and, you know, that kind of thing. So I like the juxtaposition because it also allows for different pacing. If everything was frantic, the whole movie, um, I think it might be a too much or too unbalanced. So the way that I can pose kind of uh, the more natural shots with, more uh, posed shots or studio-ish shots uh, was a way to kind of balance the flow and pacing of the film. So within that balance of the real and the uh, posed, there is a subtle criticism in the fourth film. Uh, Kira Strelsman is talking about uh, how home cooking can be a, a burden, basically a chore, you have to do this, and there's this beautiful sweeping music uh, played by the Chamber Orchestra of Pittsburgh. In, prior in the film, that is paired with a lot of the uh, kind of studio cooking shots, the sped-up montages. Uh, you see, like, fancy meals just uh, arising out of nothing, and it's paired with that music, and it's a little chef's table-y. You know, at, after watching so many chef's table, I'm like, oh, let me try to speed up the camera on the food cooking and see what happens. Um, but then you have that same music being paired with Kira talking about the drudgery of cooking, so in a way, it's um, my own slight nod to uh, manufactured, the manufactured nature of uh, some of these cooking shows and food shows and how they're so romanticized, but excluding a lot of the drudgery behind cooking in a restaurant or cooking at home or shopping, you know, every three days or every two weeks or something like that. It definitely can be drudgery. <laughs> yeah. And that's said from someone who likes to cook. Mm -hmm. Um it's not always fun. <laughs> it's not always a fun part of life, but it is a necessary part of life. Yeah. And uh, nothing makes that more apparent than all of your really, really adorable shots of babies <laughs> at the beginning of Chapter 4. Yeah. Uh, hat tip to you, because what a good way to get across how elemental that is to humanity. Yeah. I'd like to thank my friends who let me film their babies. Kim Bracken spoke to that well when she mm. said the first thing that 
we do as human beings besides breathe is eat. Kim was awesome because her interview just kind of framed these movies for me. It, it gave such a nice introduction to how we think about food. And that, that idea that one of the first things that we do is eat is really important because one of the first things you do, you do it at least hopefully three times a day. You know, it's something that's never going to leave you until a very old age. It's a constant presence in our life, and it seems like it's something that we should all be thinking about. Alice Julia talks about there being a slight, you know, social contract that we at least acknowledge where our food comes from. You don't have to have an interest in it, but you at least understand to some extent where the food comes from, how it's made, what you're actually eating. And that seems like if you're doing this every day, you should have some awareness of food and the components surrounding food. If anyone listening would like to extend their awareness of where their food is coming from, you can see David Bernambo's film at the Harris Theater mm -hmm. on September 29th at 7.30. And that's part of the Renew Festival that's happening all month, and there's a bunch of different events and uh, sustainability films and things happening. Will there be further screenings scheduled? I'm looking into setting up community screenings and would be extremely interested in anybody that would want to show the film at a church or a community meeting or anywhere, really. These films weren't made with profit in mind, so I have a projector. I'm willing to travel and uh, willing to show the whole movie or excerpts or anything like that. Well, thank you so much, David. Well, thank you. This was great. To learn more about David's films, visit www.foodsystemsfilm.com. For more soundbite, visit our archives at www.pghcitypaper.com. And until next time, go out and have yourself a food adventure. <laughs>